Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The idea was that when you join Hezbollah or when you join an Iraqi group or even when you join the Houthis in Yemen, um, you are joining this bigger attempt to change the world, right? You're, you're joining this big attempt to reform politics. And you know, all the ideas, the revolutionary fever that came out of the 1979. Of course, that's just a potential. How was Soleimani able to effectuate this potential, which had failed many times before? One day, all of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. Uh, when genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and uh, when it is uh, near to completion, uh, people talk about intervention. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. If you've ever heard of the phrase one man wrecking crew, you might well think of this next man, Qasem Soleimani, Iran's shadow commander. Soleimani's first fight was against Iraq in the war that started right after Iran's revolution and lasted until 1988. He went on to great success fighting bandits and drug lords eventually taking over Iran's Quds Force, Iran's tool for diplomacy by other means. For more than 20 years, Soleimani helped Ayatollah Khamenei project power around the region, becoming a force to be reckoned with in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and more. In January, Qasem Soleimani was killed by the United States. Today, we're joined by Arash Azizi, who literally wrote the book on Soleimani. It's called The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S., and Iran's Global Ambitions, and it was just published in November. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Can we start with, it's not quite breaking news, but it's pretty close. A top nuclear scientist, Iranian nuclear scientist, was killed by, everybody says, Israel recently. And that comes on the heels of another Israeli operation that uh, killed someone from Al-Qaeda, also in Tehran. Can you talk a little bit about what you see might be going on? I, I mean, you know, uh, the, basic, uh, the basic reality that it shows, number one, is how vulnerable the IRGC is and how bad it is at its you know, most basic jobs of 
keeping the security of, uh, of even its highest officials. So the said scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, was actually the head of a covert uh, nuclear weapons program that the world believed, most of the intelligence agencies believed it was discontinued in 2003. Um, but at any rate, he was very highly guarded. He was always known. In fact, if you read Ronan Bergman's book about history of Mossad operations around the world, it notes that Iranians heavily guarded Fakhrizadeh. So he was always was a really high value target. And the fact that they were able to kill him in plain sight in a very guarded, a small village outside Tehran, and then they were also able to get the, uh, you know, one of the Al-Qaeda figures who was, who was in Iran a few uh, months before that shows that they're really bad. And I think it ties to the story of my book, perhaps. And, you know, the question that is raised is that, you know, what does that say about Iranian security when the IRGC, the security agencies, have this ability to, to have control in Lebanon and Iraq and Syria and spread themselves out, but they're not able to keep uh, basic security in their own backyard in Iran. Perhaps that's um, one way uh, to think about it. I think first you should actually tell people what the IRGC is, because not everybody probably knows. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and uh, maybe even a little bit about their foundation, because the story is fascinating. Yeah, so it, this is basically, yeah, it's, I think it's at the heart of the book. IRGC, which stands for Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, is an organization that came to be after the 1979 revolution. So the revolution uh, brings down the Shah, brings down the monarchy in Iran, and gives rise to a new Islamic republic headed by Ayatollah Khomeini, a Shia cleric who had spent most of um, the last couple of decades in exile, but he now comes back to heroes will come and he's able to unite the very large coalition and found this Islamic Republic. So the, as with any revolution, there is a question of what to do with the state institutions that the country inherits from the past and how to build new ones. Many, and not just the Islamists, believe that you need new armed forces of, of different sorts. And in fact, new armed groups and armed guards have really sprung up all over the place. They've took the affairs to their own hands. Again, this happens in, in basically every revolution in history, in Russian, you know, Cuba and Chinese. So, but what happens at this point, again, <laughs> like with, with other cases in the world, is that Khomeini and the leadership of the Islamic Republic try to unite uh, these armed groups and, uh, you know, banish the ones they don't like. And they do that, and that's how IRGC comes to be. But the important thing about it, I'll just point to two things about IRGC and its foundation that, that is important. Um, one is that it doesn't even use the name Iran in its, um, in its name, right? And this was a debate, and it's not accidental. They choose not to have the name Iran because they believe that their goals are international and beyond Iran. So from the very beginning, this idea that they should do things outside Iran is there. And the two is that, as IRGC leaders repeatedly say themselves, they don't believe they're bound by the constitution of Iran, you know, let alone international law. They don't believe they're bound by anything but what they see as the ideals of the revolution as interpreted by themselves sometimes or by the command of the supreme leader. So this, this really defines them as this force that sees itself not bound by the borders of Iran and not bound. And by any law. And uh, today, it is definitely the most powerful force in Iran, not just militarily, but economically. It controls them like 30, 40% of Iranian economy. So let's talk about Soleimani a little bit. Can you tell us you know, basically who he was, what his origins were? Because his story is tied up with the guard just inextricably. Definitely. So Qasem Soleimani was a very young man when the revolution happened. Unlike the stories that they sort of later claim, he he was a he was a he was a basic 
young boy in, in a tribal part of Iran, and he, he did not seem to have had any political uh, or even religious really experience, right? So he, was, he had not really been part of the revolution in any serious, meaningful way. But who he was, was that he was from the Kerman province in south of Iran, and not even on the sort of provincial center, but he came from a tribal area, a very small village. And as a young man, he had ended up going to Kerman, the provincial center, to work, to help, you know, pay his family, which was a pretty poor family. And, you know, he signed up in karate classes and he got into martial arts. And he is known to have had friends who would attend revolutionary sermons. But anyways, the, the, the revolution of Iran, 1979, and the war that ensues immediately after with Iraq, eight-year war that pits Iran against Saddam Hussein's Iraq from 1980 to 1988, is what really makes Soleimani's career. The young boy joins the IRGC. His first application to join is actually rejected because he didn't look like anything like a good, you know, Islamist boy. You know, he kind of was too fashionable and had funny hair and you know, they didn't like him for that. But they, they, he impresses them with his physical abilities, really, because he was, as I said, he had played karate, he had played sort of traditional Persian athletics. And he looked like someone that you want to have on, on your side, right? So he's able to really rise through the ranks of the RGC throughout the war with Iraq. And uh, he's, one of the, he's one of the many whose lives are really changed by the revolution and by the war. And throughout these eight years of the war, he rises to become some sort of a middle commander, if you will. And he heads his own division. And he really excels at having, you know, basically recruiting boys from his own province of Kerman and a couple of provinces nearby. So in a revolution that had, had to rise a mass army basically to fight Iraq with a very deadly, you know, long war. People like this are very important, right? People who are able to recruit local boys. And that's the story of his rise. That's how as he rises to become a leading soldier. And to the end of his days, to the day he was killed in January 3rd, 2020, he remained a soldier of the IRGC. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Iran looked like in what it was like politically and intellectually at the time when he was a young man. So I think that in the West and especially America, we really misunderstand the revolution. So can you talk about that a little bit and how it was not just this one Islamic thing, but it was, you know, it's very different than that, right? Yes, certainly, of course. Um, the, uh, of course, it wasn't just Islamic thing. The basic, the basic um, way to understand the Iranian revolution of 1979 is to actually look at it in my opinion, in the framework of the what I call the long 1960s, like from 1960s and 70s, right? This is a time when you have revolts all over the world. You have different sort of experimentation. You know, if I want to say a bit provocatively, the Iranian revolution has more to do with the sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture of the 60s that it has with Islamic history, really, because it's just one more form of experimentation. So what happens is that but Iran has a monarchical government of the Shah, who is also a close U.S. ally in the context of the Cold War. That obviously matters. And uh, there is a very wide-ranging coalition against him, a lot of whom are communists, they're Marxists, and, yes, and some of whom are Islamists. Although these Islamists almost always, actually not even almost, it's, it's very, very rare for them to emphasize, let's say, a social conservative agenda, Right. Khomeini, uh, the, he very rarely he says that, oh yeah, we'd like to go and make Iran a more socially conservative place. He speaks of an Islam that is revolutionary, that he speaks of his commitment to human rights. Um, and there are many Islamist figures who mix Islam with, with Mao Zedong, with, with Lenin, with, you know, with different sort of leftist interpretations. 
Um, of course, if anyone actually read the fine print of Khomeini, he had already pretty much said that he wants to create a, a Islamist regime in Iran, an Islamist regime that some scholars have likened to Plato's Republic in some way. Basically, this was a, you know, he wanted a theocratic system led by a philosopher king. But as you know, people don't read fine prints. <laughs> They don't actually read the theoretical works of figures like this. They supported him politically. So the basic story um, and tragedy, if you will, of the Iranian revolution is that it, it was a very wide coalition of people who came out for, for progressive change, really. They wanted an end to the dictatorship, and they had all different sorts of progressive visions. But what happened afterwards is that Khomeini was able to use his mass backing to suppress all other forces, even all other Islamists, basically, everybody but himself and his acolytes, effectively, and build the Islamic Republic in the way that, uh, that you know, in the way that we know it, a dictatorial, restrictive regime that also starts having what you can call a sort of social conservative agenda, but I mean, a very forcefully applied social conservative agenda. He wants to remake the world in the image of an ideal Islam in a way that really has never happened in history when you really think about it, uh, certainly not in modern times. So how, actually, I want to talk about Soleimani himself a little bit more. He really came into his own, I mean, by being everywhere at once. I mean, that's one thing that comes up in your book, that he is just always at the forefront of the battle. And, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, how he got that reputation and uh, and then also why he's called the Shadow Commander. I mean, I love that title. I personally wouldn't mind being like the Shadow Podcast host or something like that. But Yeah, well, it's an interesting story because it's a story of how capability and competence, if you will, can play an important role in history, right? There's actually all these debates about how effective the assassination of Soleimani was and how replaceable he is. And these debates are sometimes silly because they're not genuine. Like people already have an opinion and sort of they say, but I think if you actually look at the facts, it's quite clear that Soleimani is very hard to replace. So the story of his life is really the story of the level of competence and capability that he had. And that's because of something that you point to. So the basic, in my view, Soleimani because he came from he came from a very marginalized background, as I said, he came from tribal Iran. He was he was also a real soldier for life. This is important because there are other people in the IRGC who have a more you know they have a theoretical understanding of Islamism. They're sort of their readers, right? They're they're people who are interested in politics. Soleimani really doesn't involve himself in political thinking. They try to. You know, the, the images that they give of him is that, oh, he was such a genius that, you know, when he met Putin, Putin was like, wow, you understand the world better than anyone I've ever met. But there is no truth to this. There's ample evidence you can see in his writings um, and in his speeches. He has actually a very limited understanding of, of politics, you know, and that he, he sort of, he follows the command of Khomeini. But what he's very impressive at is that he's, number one, he's a combat man. So he's always there. And this is very important. And you can see this throughout his career. In his career throughout the war with Iraq, 1982-1988, it's not as broad. I mean, I'm not a military historian, so you know, there's a limit to how much sort of judgment I can have. But it's clear that he's definitely not perceived as being, you know, very brilliant. He's, but, but he's considered as being very brave, almost to the crazy level, right? 
the sort of guy who does something that that everyone the sort of guy that you see in superhero movies right that does something that's kind of crazy but it's very daring and he would do it and this quality matters a bit in the Iran Iraq war but it comes to matter way more later because of what happens after the war is that he joins the the effort to fight the drug lords of eastern iran these are the borders of iran afghanistan and pakistan as you can imagine it's something of a, a lawless border where a lot of drug rules and drug lords really control vast swaths there are, you know if you talk to people who live in that area there are vast swaths of iran that are no-go areas and soleimani is a guy who goes there and he gets on a helicopter and he shows up and this becomes much more important of the next job that he has as the commander of the Quds force which directs Iranian uh, operations in the Arab world, whether it's helping Hezbollah um, in Lebanon and it's in its famous fight with Israel in 2006, or whether it's helping the Shia forces um, in Syria and other places. Soleimani shows up and he's able, really, the achievement of his career, if you will, that he's able to build a Shia transnational army that really is able to fight you know, that is more than the sum of its parts, right? That, that it really has some sort of a unity. And it's important because the question of why would people join up um, in militia to fight and die for, it's, it's an important one, right? We pass over it, but it's, you know, why would young Iraqis go and join not their national army, but a army effectively under the command of an Iranian? It's not, it's not obvious of why that would happen. And part of it is that Soleimani is there and he has this capability. And the last thing I'd say on this account is that the most important part of the being there was, well, in the fight against ISIS, he shows up to Iraqi battlefield and he shows up to Syria. But in 2006, also, he shows up to Lebanon against the advice of Hezbollah leadership, frankly. And he, he does it twice. I mean, he comes from Iran after Hezbollah and Israel are in that fight and Hezbollah at the beginning thinks they're finished. But Soleimani goes there and brings sort of greetings and instructions from the Supreme Leader of Iran. And he goes back to Iran and he comes back again in the course of that war that went on for a couple of months. So this ability, this quality of being there really helps him to build trust with a lot of young men that he sent to their deaths and to be an effective commander of what is a very unusual theater spanning a few countries. You you make it sound like, let me see if I can phrase it this way. So was he aware of the myth um, and the reputation that surrounded him? And did he use that? Or was it something that was more propped up by other people? So there, there's all, there was always a debate, right? So on one side of this debate, I mean, we live in the age of media, right? We live in the age of mass media and Soleimani is the man of this age. There was actually a big debate as to did, is it really the Western press that made Soleimani to who he is? Um, because that's surely what they cared about most, right? Soleimani's image of being on the Newsweek and Soleimani's profile in the New Yorker magazine are repeated like, you know, religiously um, across the sort of publications that support him. This was a big, you know, you know, now we have a commander who's on the cover of Newsweek that can even maybe give rise to the ethics of the question. Because... We all know also, if you're in the Western media, you are looking for characters, right? It's sort of character-driven story. So you want a guy you put on the cover. So and maybe you help really turn the guy into a myth. But whatever the process was, I'd say that, yes, yeah, so he turned out to be this big figure. He had this mythical image that he cultivated. He cultivated very closely and very carefully. The Iranian regime is very adept at this sort of thing. They were 
you know, they spent millions of dollars so that they would create just the right image of him, that he would be seen in just the right way, and that he would be seen above politics. Uh, even though he wasn't above politics, he was very much able to support the suppression of the uh, democratic movement in Iran and support the supreme leader. So they really cultivated an image of him as this mystical, above it all, commander with, with all these qualities, and some of the Western coverage helped. But the last thing I'd say on this is that you know, we talk about the shadow commander, something that I quote in the book, Ryan Crocker, the U.S. ambassador who worked closely with Soleimani at some point in his career. Uh, he, he wrote an, uh, basically, he wrote a piece about Soleimani's assassination in New York Times, I think the day after his death, and he said the shadow commander had come out of the shadows. And that's definitely, that's definitely the case. Soleimani had become a household name. Obviously, everyone knew how he looked like. And I think he was enjoying it a little too much, frankly, which is why he also, as I reveal in the book for the first time, he considered running for president in 2021. I think he, you know, he made what you can say perhaps the mistake of enjoying it a little too much. He, the temptations are hard, right? When you become a globally known figure and when you, he was easily Iran's, you know, best known person in some ways, right? One of the top five. And the, it was a it was a little too tempting. So he taunted Trump. He tweeted at him. He spoke against him. But also he was he was everywhere now. There were pictures of him everywhere. There was pictures of him in Iraq, pictures of him in Syria. That definitely created vulnerabilities. That you know, for example, a figure like Jihad Mognier, who I write about in the book, one of the Hezbollah figures. I mean, famously for years, no one knew how he looked like. Right? Like there, there was no picture. Intelligence agencies hardly had pictures of him. And there was famous that, oh, he's just in downtown Beirut. He's having ice cream in downtown Beirut and no one even knows because, you know, no one knows how he looks like. So Imani um, compromised that by becoming this big media celebrity. We're going to pause there for a break. You're listening to Angry Planet. We're talking about the Shadow Commander. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Thank you very much for sticking with us. You are listening to Angry Planet. We are talking about the Shadow Commander. But it's interesting because he wasn't out there entirely on his own. I mean, in the West, you get this figure like uh, MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, that like he went off and, you know, he almost invaded China during the Korean War and had to be fired before he started up World War III effectively. But Soleimani was actually, he stayed by Hamani's side, right? I mean, he was actually happy to be working for the guy. A company man, we'd call him. Thank you. 
That's an excellent, that's, I think that's an actually excellent point. And it's interesting that you bring MacArthur, who obviously was a, was a soldier in a country where there are democratic sort of norms and there's control, civilian control of the military is established and all that. And yet he was effectively, effectively come out of that and that's why he had to be fired. But also like, he could be fired, right? It's an interesting comparison with, with Soleimani because you're absolutely right that he, he carried the commands of Khamenei to the note. Right, and he he was very much a Khamenei man, and he was very much a company man in this way. The question, of course, is, and the question is not dead because Soleimani is dead, but there are much more of the IRGC. The, the question of relationship of IRGC with Ayatollah Khamenei is an interesting one. Khamenei is eighty-one now; he's thinking about his successor and his legacy, and the IRGC is his most powerful uh, militia, and everyone thought. Until a couple months ago, everyone thought it's sure that IRGC is going to control the next president of Iran, whoever it is, maybe a guards figure, actually. The, the presidential elections are in June 2021. Of course, one thing has now changed, and that's the defeat of Trump in the U.S. elections. And they, there's a question whether a President Biden can do a sort of an overture that would strengthen Rouhani, the current president, or strengthen more pro-West figures in Iran by pro-West figures, we mean figures who prefer dealing with the West as opposed to IRGC hardliners. And, you know, whether, whether even if Khamenei approves it, IRGC can go against him, right? So the question of whether there would be any daylight, if you will, between an IRGC commander like Soleimani and Khamenei is interesting. I think with the way Soleimani had defined his life and career, and I say this based on the closest study that obviously I did of him, everything he's ever written, everything... All the people, you know, I spoke to his driver, I spoke to his family members. I think he very much had tied himself to Khamenei. And it's important to remember that, I don't know what who Truman was to Douglas MacArthur, right? I guess there's this, there is this thing in, and I talk about in the, in the book, I do talk about this. There is this sort of soldiers who hate politicians in suits in general, right? So Soleimani and them had this about, they had this about the elected presidents. They had this about a lot of, sort of people in suits, but they don't see Khamenei that way, the supreme leader. They see him as philosopher king, really. They see him as a sage, they, or they have a mystical image of him, as a wise sage who is also very innocent in his own way, right? That's the image they give of the guy. You know, it's important to understand this, this image that they have of, and what, what do I mean by innocent? It's sort of a mystical Shia image of a guy who actually you know, he's again above it all. He's wronged by everyone, but he has to sort of put them together. It's It gets an interesting level of ideological work to give this image of someone who, after all, it's head of a state, you know, controls everything. It's kind of amazing, actually, when Khamenei gives the speeches and complains about the political sort of situation in the country. You Some regimes, you get to do that, right? It doesn't make sense if, say, a president of the United States does that because everyone says, well, you have all the power. But Mao Zedong in China could, in fact, work on a revolution against the state itself in a way, right? So Khamenei does that to the degree sometimes. He tries to put, put, push himself above it all. And, and as a figure who is, is trying to do the right thing, but he, as if he doesn't actually control the state. So the loyalty that Soleimani had to Khamenei was really of this, of this mystical, almost Sufi way. Uh, that you know that was beyond a feeling that a soldier would have to a to a normal commander in chief. If we can expand on that a little bit, I want to touch on something that you've you've brought up a couple times now. Was the 
Soleimani had an ability to get young men to fight for him. You, I think you've said two or three times that, that that was one of his like defining characteristics. What was it about him that made him so charismatic and made people from other countries want to come and fight in Hezbollah? That's, that's a, that's a great point because again, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good question, right? How would thousands of people sign up in, in our, in modern times, the most normal way in which people sign up to die effectively is for their nation in the national army. So when they do that for militias that are not national armies, questions are raised, books are written, like departments are created because we want to understand this phenomenon. Now, I think Soleimani operated, of course, out of the, what you can say, Khomeinism, the Iranian ideology, Islamism, whatever we want to call it. But this, this, this image that came out of Tehran, this ideology that came out of Tehran helped. The idea was that when you join Hezbollah or when you join an Iraqi group, or even when you join the Houthis in Yemen, um, you are joining this bigger attempt to change the world, right? You're you're joining this big attempt to reform politics. And, you know, all the ideas, the revolutionary fever that came out of the 1979. Of course, that's just a potential. How was Soleimani able to effectuate this potential, which had failed many times before? You know, it fails in Bosnia when Iran tries to create a good group there. It fails when Iran tries to incite the Shia in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia as their attempts of the 80s. But I think the reason, uh, there are a couple of points where Soleimani was able to do it. First, personally, the, the charisma question, I said that, yeah, he is able to create this charisma because number one, they can see that he's a guy who is ready to take a bullet, right? He is not a commander behind the desk. He's always showing up. He's impressive in that way. He has this sort of quiet, you know, he has this sort of quiet mysticism to him. He's very technically able. He's also not only he's very sort of has a very strong physique, but he's technically able. He's he's very technically competent. He uses the achieved technological knowledge that Iranian armies gained in the 1980s in the war with Iraq. So and he applies it to these, you know, effectively terrorist groups that he supports, so that they're not, you know, they're not very shoddy affairs as they were before. They're they're more able and more effective in that way. But also, you know, the sort of thing that we got to talk about, of course, is that in the last 20 years, the, what, what the scholars have called sectarianization. It's, it's important to, uh, to, be, uh, to be exact here because it's unfortunate that many uh, sort of studies of the Middle East imagine that Sunni and Shia, the two main sects of Islam, they're sort of automatic categories that mean, well, you know, of course you could go on you're not the Shias, you're not the Sunnis. It's, it's, it's never like that, and it's, it's never been so simple. Some of the people Soleimani supported, like Hamas or Sunnis, in the history, the very recent history, we see, for example, a Shia kingdom in Yemen was supported by Saudi Arabia. So it's really not about the fact that all Sunnis support Sunni and Shia support Shia, but how this sectarianization, sectarian hatred created on both sides, which happens through different processes, including the Iraqi invasion of 2003, including the rise of Al-Qaeda, including the way Lebanese politics work, well, they help, right? So if you're a young Shia, now there is this Shia-Sunni fight and Soleimani is a big figure on your side. And he's able to use all these elements of Shia culture, Shia martyrdom, to, to encourage them and to come and join it. It seems to be a, a, a small difference, but it's a big difference, right? And why does that matter? Because so if sectarianization was possible, unsectarianization is also possible. And I think that's actually what we're seeing. Had Soleimani lived, he would see his own army, I think, unravel in front of his eyes. And I think we already see it a bit, especially in Iraq and Lebanon, where two countries with Shia and 
well, large Shia majority in Iraq and a very, no one does a census in Lebanon, so we don't know how big the uh, Shia are in Lebanon, but they're the biggest, they're the plural, definitely, population. And they're turning against Iranian influence and they're turning against Soleimani's friends because they're fed up of the, well, they're fed up of foreign interference, frankly, and they're fed up of the, of the problems they have in their own countries. So Soleimani's, Soleimani's effectiveness also had its limits. Well, and he also fought on all kinds of different sides, as you're sort of saying. I mean, he sometimes he's on a Shia side, sometimes he's on a Sunni side. And he also was on the American side in a couple of battles. I know it was kind okay. of a coincidence, but I mean, well, it's not exactly a coincidence. Can you kind of explain how the United States found itself fighting alongside Soleimani? Well, uh, we really got to go back. Let's go back to 9-11, right? Soleimani is new in the job. He, he was appointed head of the Quds Commander in 1998. So his job is to organize pro-Iran forces across the world, really, and in the region. And 9-11 happens. And the map to the Middle East and really the world is changed forever. So what's the, what's the first thing that follows 9-11? After a month after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which of course were condemned by Iran, uh, U.S. invades Afghanistan. This is good news for Iran, basically, because it gets rid of one of its main enemies, Taliban, the uh, militant Islamist regime, something like the, you know, it's really like the ISIS of its day. It rises in, uh, it, it had existed in Afghanistan. It was only recognized by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and, and United Arab Actually, it wasn't recognized by Saudi Arabia either. I think Pakistan and United Arab Emirates officially. And uh, so Iran is happy that Taliban is coming down and Iran is ready to, uh, play ball with America. It, it's, in fact, Soleimani, this is the period in which Soleimani helps Americans get rid of Taliban, right? And there are these meetings, Ryan Crocker, uh, who, who is the ambassador to Afghanistan at this point, U.S.'s you know, new ambassador to Afghanistan, has this um, notes about, you know, he's given interviews, he's written about uh, what, what happens in these meetings, which was sort of funny to him, because Soleimani's men show up to the meetings and they're like with maps, right? So it's not just some generic thing. They're like, oh, here are the maps, here are the Taliban positions. They effectively help. They help Americans get rid of the Taliban because A, a common enemy, B, because they're also, you know, excuse my French, but they're shed is scared, right? They're scared of, well, if the United States is coming heavily to the region and it invaded Afghanistan, then it's going to go for Iraq. They're very worried that it could come for Iran. So they're ready to compromise the United States. And well, you know, this is not just what I think, but Brian Crocker, many other diplomats in the US think that this is where uh, the Bush government makes this uh, sort of historical mistake, which really it attacks Iran. It you know it puts it part of the axis of evil. And what's amazing is that so Bush declares Iran to be part of axis of evil in in his set of union speech, his first set of union speech in two thousand two, and uh, January two thousand two. And even the top American diplomats who were talking to Iranians just find about this while they were watching TV. Like they were not even consulted. So this is effectively Iran is closely working with America against Taliban at that point. And all of a sudden they on TV, they hear that Iran is access of evil and the policies that the Bush administration has. It's one of the many false starts between Iran and the um, United States in the last in the last two decades. But yeah, that's, that's one important instance of Soleimani working with Americans against Taliban. And then in Iraq, effectively in the years of, um, rise of ISIS, so let's say about 2013, 2015, and afterwards, uh, well, Iran and the United States are on the same side because they're both fighting ISIS throughout the period of invasion of Iraq. Right? So after 2003, 
it's important to draw a distinction. Soleimani does kill a lot of American soldiers, helps kill a lot of American soldiers, which is why many in the intelligence and defense community in the United States really hated the guy, right? And they're happy he was killed. But they also collaborate at certain points. This collaboration is, even before ISIS, is a collaboration of effectively two imperial powers in Iraq, right? You, you sort of, the Iran and the United States become the two strongest foreign powers in Iraq, and they have to, they have to collaborate somehow, right? Just to keep a stability in the ground. So that's what happens. And yeah, the last thing I'd say is that throughout the years of fight against ISIS, of course, is also when Iran and the United States are uh, doing the nuclear negotiations, which leads to the Iran nuclear deal of 2015. So really, it's a point in which Iran and the United States have become closest in some ways, if you will, with a lot of caveats, because you know, it's complicated, but they are, they are collaborating, and they had also collaborated in the, in the early years of the century. Just all sounds like real politic, right? I, I mean, it's just, I didn't say that very well, but you know what I'm, you know what I mean? It's just insane. Nobody's really on anybody's side. Uh, it's all uh, alliances of the moment. Very, very much like a good TV show nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they say there's an old saying that nations don't have um, permanent friends, they have permanent interests, right? But I think specifically in relation to Iran, the thing that, you know, the reason that I and many others have jobs as Iran watchers of different sorts um, is this complexity this about Iran. That is, you know, so the revolution in 1979 gave birth to Islamist regime, which it was born in the condition of Cold War. It was not pro-US, but it was also not pro-Soviet. In fact, one of the reasons it had came to be was that the Carter administration at the time was not very worried about the Islamists coming to power in Iran because they believed, well, whatever they are, they're not communists, right? This leads to conspiracy theories on the monarchist side who believe Carter personally wrote, you know, Shah Dong, which is obviously sort of ridiculous. But it is true that President Carter wrote, for example, in his diaries that, oh, in, if Iran, a non-aligned regime comes to Iran, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe we could get rid of that Shah and we have. So from the beginning, there's this ambiguity. Then, of course, the the um, ransacking of the U.S. embassy in Tehran happens in November 1979, and anti-Americanism turns out to be actually a sort of part of the DNA of the Islamic regime and becomes sort of very important. But this has always also, this anti-Americanism has always had a unstable character to it. Because just think about it, right? After all, who says in order to be a good Islamist, you have to be against America? It's not immediately clear. Right? It's not immediately clear. If you have a very anti-imperialist vision, then maybe you have to be. You know, if you're a good Islamist, you might ask yourself, you know what? How come we collaborate with Putin's Russia, which is best friends with Israel, who's not a Muslim, let alone the fact that he's sort of is friends with China, who suppresses a lot of its own Muslims, but we can't be friends with the United States. So there is this inherent instability built into the uh, to the inconsistent ideology and reality of, of Islamic Republic. That means that there are, there are significant sections of, of the regime who want to have good relations with the U.S. in one way or the other. And the other important thing is the ideology of the regime born in the conditions of the Cold War was also sort of neutral, if you will, or contested on the question of capitalism or, or communism. Of course, what they said, it's easy. What do you say as an Islamist? We don't want capitalism. We don't want communism. We want Islam, right? But what does that actually mean? What does Islamic economy really mean? And, you know, I won't bore you. This has been a long debate on different sorts of Islamists. But in the first 10 years of the revolution, different different proposals are, are tried. There are some who are 
straight out socialist. They want to nationalize everything and build heavy industry. They want Iran to be like an Islamic Soviet Union, really. And there are those who are outright capitalists. The capitalists win. That's really the story. They they win already before the end of the Cold War, but they definitely win after the end of the Cold War, right? And they and which is why Iran today is a capitalist country. They push it to be more capitalist. And if you're capitalist again, there is more room to work with the United States. So long story short, the desire to have better relations with the United States in Bombay or the other has always been part of the Islamic Republic. It's just a question of how Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader who's been there since 1989, has already built, made such a brand out of anti-Americanism that it would be difficult for him effectively to eat his hat, if you will, and, and uh, have established good relations with the United States. Since, but, but, it's, uh, but it won't be out of character or in a fundamental contradiction with the ideologies of the Iranian regime. Boy, I got to say, this is actually very, in some ways, it's just, it's confusing because there's just no moral clarity here. Uh, so, uh, when we love our moral clarity in the United States, don't we? we do like our moral clarity. We like to know who our good guys are and who our bad guys are. And uh, I mean, it just actually sounds a little bit like, you know, an ad in the old village voice. It's right, you know, like chance encounter where the United States says, I was on the out, uptown bus, you were running downtown, and we almost got together, but we never quite brought it all <laughs> into one thing. Well, that, that's actually, I think that's a good description of Iran-American relations. I mean, there's been so many near misses. I mean, you know, you know, God knows what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 presidential elections, right? Because, I mean, I'll tell you, the Iran and America were not were supposed to be enemies at that point already, but I covered the nuclear talks, right? And you know, Zarif and Kerry and the whole team, right? It's like the foreign ministers of Iran and the United States. They were chums, you know. They emailed, they joked, they sent happy birthdays. They, the Iranian deputy foreign minister, by the way, a fun fact, sent a Christmas card to Wendy Sherman. Of course, Wendy Sherman is Jewish, so. <laughs> She pointed out that uh, this wasn't quite a period, but that's where we were, right? So that's how that's how close the connections between two elites were. And for, you know, as long as the good guys and the bad guys are concerned, by the way, let me say my two cents as well, because when you write about a guy like this, it becomes clear. Obviously, it's boring if you just write a book and, you know, keep talking about how much the guy sucks, right? You're interested in understanding. But there, there's no doubt uh, in, in my mind that these are all the bad guys, right? This is a regime that, that has organized terrorist attacks around the world, that, uh, that uh, endorses uh, Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism on a massive scale, right? It's Khamenei is probably, I mean, he's probably the only head of a state who, who does regular Holocaust denial, but it's interesting because not just Holocaust denial, but it's, uh, you know, it's not some just sort of cranky idea. It's actually part of the, you know, it's, it's really important basically to the type of politics that he espouses. And that, uh, and in all the other things, I mean, the only other, the only country in the world that imposes a dress code on half of its population, i.e., the woman, the only country in the world that bans women from singing, heavily restrictive dictatorial. So there's there's all these things. But what makes Iran complicated, if you will, is I think in one word is that part of the people who led the seventy nine revolution have already come to this conclusion that 
you know, that they were wrong and they would like to make changes. And there is, there's always been a domestic battle in Iran. And if you really think about it, it's in some ways not unlike uh, the Soviet Union. There are important differences. But at the end of the day, I think we all can all agree that the Stalin Soviet Union was, you know, as bad guy as you can possibly get, right? You know, hopefully you don't have many tanky uh, <laughs> audiences, but I mean, killing sort of millions of people and putting them in gulags and all that. But from the 50s, you have different sort of engagements with the Soviet Union precisely because uh, many people believe that engagement is ultimately um, ultimately better and ultimately it will help the reform of the regime or it will strengthen the better elements. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what makes the whole thing complicated. It's not, the, it's not that we're not sure whether Khamenei is a good guy or not. It's the question of how can you um, reform a regime like this and how can you strengthen those elements inside the country who are you know who who will the job of change themselves and i i am on one of those who believes you do that by by engagement actually that the, the biggest threat to the islamic regime is actually engagement it's you know, engagement with the united states with it that maximum pressure policy of trump was a failure precisely on this account it has strengthened the most hardline elements in the regime and it would never be able to uh, to bring it down. Well, so so what's next? Uh, now we've, we've got <laughs> no seriously. I mean, we've got. Uh, I mean, Soleimani's out of the picture. I assume yeah. uh, someone else took over the Quds Force and will be stirring up shit all over the Middle East, uh, <laughs> continuing that fine tradition. But I mean, do you see anything clear on the horizon? Oh, Ani is the guy who replaces Soleimani. Very briefly, I would just say that he does not have the charisma of Soleimani, not even close. He doesn't even speak Arabic. And also, Iran is in such dire economic straits that he can't um, spend, you know, on his forces like he did before. So he's definitely no Soleimani. Now, as for the reading of tea leaves and the future, I mean, it's, uh, you know, many factors in play. what, What happened in the next presidential elections in Iran would be telling. The next... Two months are interesting. Of course, we've got to see uh, you know, what happens in the region. There are many worries that there might be a conflagration of one sort of thing. But the next six months are also interesting. Basically, we have to see what Biden administration does and what kind of... There is almost no doubt that Biden administration will do some sort of overture to Iran around the nuclear question. And we have to see what would a possible return to the negotiations mean. We have to see um, what effect that will have on Iranian society. But I'll, but I'll, but I'll tell you this. Khamenei will die. He's 81. You know, he'll die. Uh, he'll die sometime soon, right? We hope. And we, well, I mean, you know, you don't live forever, as we know. So the question of what will happen in the regime afterwards, it's interesting, of course. It's hard for me to be a sort of cold-blooded analyst on this. It's my country. You know, I'd like to go back. I haven't been able to go back for some years now. And uh, the what makes me, let's say, optimistic and hopeful is that I think fundamentally this authoritarian regime it's uh, it's really incompatible with with Iranian people you know i really i do say that as not just an emotional thing i just think it's almost fluke of the history how we ended up having a regime like this and i think there is not real and big deep su- support in the majority of society and it has some support of course but in the majority of society is not so my hope is that in the long term iranians are going to be a normal country, if I would say, which is kind of a dream that we've, we've had. It's a, not a very sexy dream to just want to be normal, but effectively, um, they will have a country, they will, they will have a country that reflects um, our reality as a big country in the Middle East that will have relations with, 
with Israel actually, like we did during the during the Shah's time and with Arab countries and with you know with different countries around the world. But this this reality of a extremist regime that tries to uh, export its vision by force of the bayonet will become a thing of the past. I think if one looks at the fundamentals of Iranian society, one is hopeful that 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 that's what lies in the future. Even though if we don't know that if that future comes in, you know. Five, ten, or fifteen years. Arash is easy. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show, and also tell everybody to buy your book. Uh, I really enjoyed it very, very much. I mean, just to get a grasp on how the Iranian Revolution actually happened, how some of it worked, so many things I didn't know. So, yeah, say something good about your book. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, what I would say about the book is that, you know, it's obviously up to, you know, readers to decide. But something I'd say about the book is that I think, the, you know, if you're, if you're interested about the Middle East and Iran, obviously, you'll find, it, you'll find it interesting. But also, if it's your first entry, I think I have tried to make it in a way that if it's your first entry, if you just basically, if you just want a good story with a lot of so, chills and chills, and that ends up, you know, you know, and then you end up also learning something about the Middle East, I think um, that that's certainly the spirit in which I have tried to write a book. That's it for this week, Angry Planet listeners. Angry Planet is me, myself, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we have a Substack. It's angryplanet.substack.com, where you get two premium episodes every month for $9. Again, that's angryplanet.substack.com. If you like the show, please follow us on Twitter. We're at angryplanetpod. I am at mjgalt. Jason is at jqfields. We're on Facebook. You can find the show wherever fine pods are casted. We will see you next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.